So please let yourself uh, get settled in a way as we begin. And in a way to listen to teachings um, is its own kind of meditation or contemplation. You sit, listen, and part of the response is not so much to take notes, there's no quiz or grade at the end, but more to listen to see if something resonates as true in your own understanding and experience, that it's really a reminder of something that you already know. And if something doesn't seem useful, then it, perhaps not, just let it go. Um, so, people come to a temple or a meditation center or a sacred place, although in a truer sense every place is sacred, but the places that we create for this, to quiet the mind and listen to or tend the heart, to find some kind of balance or inner peace for some, or release the um, conflict, stress that we might be carrying, or find some sense of renewal or, or compassion. Um, and today seems like a very good day for teachings. First of all, it's just a day or so before the summer solstice, and there's this beautiful glow of light still after 8 p.m., um, you know, and the hillsides. And um, a, a couple years ago, I went to the top of Mount Tamalpais during an afternoon to watch the transit of the planet Venus across the face of the sun. Um, and there were a number of people up there who had some big telescopes. And so one guy had this large telescope which you could peer into and had all the appropriate filters to make it safe. And you look in and there's the big enormous glowing orange yellow disk of the sun and it's very lively when you look at it through a big telescope. It's like this glowing fiery thing, quite fantastic. And then for an hour or so progressing across the face of the sun was this little black marble basically which was the planet Venus. Um, so we were sort of seeing the backside, the shadow side of it and it slowly moved across and look, watch and see where it was. And in looking, I could feel not just the planet Venus, but somehow ourself in space, because we're on another one of those little marbles going around in our solar system, this huge, vast, you know, erupting, luminous ball of, of sunlight. Um, and here we are kind of doing our dance around the sun. However, for me, it's just about 72 years now, 72 turns around. Um, and it gave a sense of vastness and perspective and mystery. Oh, how did this all happen? You know, usually we're kind of checking off our to-do list, right? What, what we have to do tomorrow. But meanwhile, we're, we're on this great ride around the sun and also um, in the spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy, that's a little bit longer, 250 million years or so. Um, but there's something so beautiful about just taking a pause 
and noticing the turning of the seasons and the changing of the light um, and having some sense of that which is outside of time. Aldous Huxley wrote, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of endless progress is the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. Um, and so he's really talking about what it means if we're always living in the doing mode rather than having a sense that we're living in eternity as well, that we live in the reality of the present with a greater sense of mystery and appreciation. So it's a beautiful time to come to the temple and find some balance. The outer one is now coming to balance light and in, in its way all the light then, you know, turning in its next way to, toward the, you know, toward the equinox, the, the true balance, and then back to, you know, the winter solstice. And we get to be part of this, this cycling dance. Today is also Juneteenth. And for those who don't know or remember what Juneteenth is, it is a celebration on June 19th of the last emancipation of slaves in the USA. Um, and that happened in Texas about two and a half years after the end of the Civil War. Um, some of the states that were, or two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, not the end of the war, some of the states that weren't in the Confederacy in the South still had slaves after Lincoln, in theory, freed slaves in the Emancipation Proclamation in, in other parts of, of the continental US. Um, and uh, so the last, the last proclamation, if you will, for the freeing of slaves in this country came in Galveston, Texas, uh, General Gordon Granger on June 19th, um, I don't know, it was 1866 or something like, I forget the quite the year, there were 250,000 slaves in Texas, a quarter of a million people enslaved, just so we don't forget the reality of this. And on that day in Galveston, he said, all who are here are now emancipated and equal as human beings under the law and in our community. And so this is celebrated in different parts of the country. And this too is kind of worthy of um, acknowledging uh, as we come together because we also come together seeking in ourselves a kind of freedom but in fact um, as it's been said Martin Luther King and others that we can't be truly free unless everyone is free that somehow our freedom is tied up with everyone else um, and what's also true is um, that the vestiges of slavery, and in, in my experience, having done some work in our enormous prison system, where we have, you know, two and a half, three million people incarcerated, and, you know, eight million people in the prison industrial system, is in part a vestiges of slavery. Our prisons are, in some ways, giant poverty, racist poverty prisons. Um, so it's not over, really. Um, May all those who are enslaved be freed in all kinds of ways. 
So we come here in the midst of the turning of the seasons and um, for whatever our personal motivation is to quiet the mind and the heart, find some inner freedom. And as uh, Martin Luther King said, um, the arc of the moral universe may be long, but it bends toward justice. May it be so, you know, we go through some very hard times in different ways, politically, economically, um, but somehow also the goodwill of humanity may bend us in the long run toward greater justice outwardly and inwardly. And this year, in these monthly Monday night teachings, I'm doing a series of talks on what's called the Buddha nature, or sometimes the paramitas, the innate perfections in, in human beings and our capacity to manifest and live from the, our Buddha nature. And so in the course of previous months, talked about generosity, integrity, wisdom, renunciation, these qualities. And each invites a shift of identity from a small sense of self, a sense of separateness, or sometimes it's called the body of fear, to open to live from a greater possibility, greater generosity, greater wisdom, a greater integrity, greater connection with all things. And it's both individual, but we can't separate the individual from our interdependence with everyone else um, and everything else. Here you are paying attention to your breath, the breath that was breathed by other people in the room and by the deer and the raccoon, and I once saw a badger here near the stream. Badger breath. Sounds like a bad ad, actually, on television. Um, but it's the same breath that dusted the tops of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa as it came over the Pacific, and it also dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. We're all in it together. Um, and so we also recognize, as I say so often, that um, the outer developments that we have so um, remarkably surrounded ourselves with uh, electronics and, you know, our smartphones and the internet and, and computer technology and biotechnology and space technology and nanotechnology, um, no amount of that will save us from continuing warfare and continuing racism and continuing environmental destruction, continuing tribalism, the outer and, and continuing addiction um, in our society. Now it turns out that um, it's become, if I read the statistic right, the number one cause of death for adults between age 20 and 50 is um, drug overdose. Um, so something's happening that needs tending. And what it says is that the inner world of humanity now needs to be developed to match the outer world. That we can't rely on outer development um, to save us in some fundamental way, or to live with love and wisdom in a beneficial way without also cultivating the inner. And that becomes both a personal responsibility, but it also in some way becomes our collective task. So tonight, um, the next step in these teachings on Buddha nature is traditionally called uh, right effort 
or maybe right endeavor. And I try to figure out how to translate this in a way that's meaningful to us in our own lives. We have an innate amount of energy. We have an innate life force. And the question is, how will we use it? How do we direct it? And there are stories, there's sort of these, all these ancient stories with these um, paramitas or these teachings. This, the main story connected with this particular um, quality of energy and effort is the story of a great ox who could, you know, do anything, something, you know, um, in, uh, in agricultural times in India, oxen were considered like the most powerful animal that you could tame to do things with it. What do you do with the oxen of your own life and the energy? So a little, just a little task as we sit here, you don't have to move or anything, but I'd like you to put your attention as you're listening to me now, shift your attention to the doors on the left that lead out to the, you know, to that. You don't even have to turn your head, just sort of your eyes and your attention. Put your attention over that side of the room. Now put your attention back up here. Mm -hmm. And now, even without looking, you know, put your attention up above, like in the space above your body. Mm -hmm. Now put your attention in your feet. Now put your attention in your hands. Mm -hmm. Now bring your attention to your heart, to your chest. Notice both the physical sensations and perhaps any feelings that are present. So what's true is that you can direct your attention, right? You can put it all over, in your body, outside your body, to the physical sensations, to the emotions that are present. We were doing it in our meditation practice as we sat here. And so the question of right effort really is where and how will you direct your attention and your energy? What is right effort? So there are some of the dimensions of it, and as you listen, perhaps something will serve as a reminder for you in your life. The first dimension of right effort, and I, I, I think I'd like to translate it as wise effort and so forth, particularly in spiritual life, but it turns out actually in all of life, is simply the effort to be mindful, to be present with loving awareness. And this from Alan Watts, who says, the art of living is neither careless drifting on the one hand nor a fearful clinging to the past or anticipation of the future. It consists of being sensitive to each moment in regarding it as utterly new and unique and having the mind and the heart open and wholly receptive. So the first and kind of most central training and capacity that we have is actually to be present. And I remember teaching with Houston Smith, this wonderful old professor of religion who'd been at MIT and wrote that book um, on world religions that sold millions of copies. And he was a really elegant, he was one of the great gentlemen that I ever met. And we were doing a panel at some, I think it was at UCLA or some big event, great big auditorium. And Houston was already in his 90s. And he had these great big hearing aids. And he stood up 
He was a little bit shaky, like 92, 93. He said, well, I can't see you that well, and I certainly can't hear, you know. My body's a little shaky, but I'm here. And, and everybody was applauded, like, okay, <laughs> way to go, Houston. And there was something so touching in the, in the moment, because, all right, my body may not, you know, be able in the way that it was, or one would, you know, think you, you wish for, or something like that. But the disability, it was not the question. I'm here, he said, and I'm really here with you. And there was this, this beautiful sense of what it meant to show up for life, however it was. Suzuki Roshi invited a few great um, kind of up-and-coming Zen masters from Japan to help him, Katagiri Roshi and uh, Kobenchino Roshi, or they, they were senseis in those days. Um, and I think it was Katagiri who came and didn't speak very good English. And Suzuki Roshi was saying, you know, you need to take the Dharma seat and give some teachings. You can't just come here. And I said, but I, don't, I, can, I can't speak English very well. And Suzuki Roshi said, it doesn't take a lot of English to teach the, the Dharma. And he said, here, I'll show you. So they rang the bell, and he, Suzuki Roshi went in and bowed and took his seat, and everyone gathered for the Dharma teachings. And he looked out and he said, today is today. Today is not yesterday. Today is not tomorrow. Today is today. And then he bowed and got down. And he said to Katagiri, okay, six words, right? There's a Dharma teaching for you. And this was really his amplification of the goal of meditation practice is to keep your beginner's mind, to actually come and live to see the eyes of the children that are playing, you know, on the floor in your room with you, or, you know, to, to watch the fading of the light as you walk in, you know, the fields or the road, or um, to see the people that you work with or tend your garden or, or taste the food that you eat to actually be alive where you are and to see what's happening around you. So this is the, this is the game, really, the first and most central capacity of your Buddha nature is that it's possible to live in an awake way and not be lost as much as we are in plans and remembers. Plans are useful. Remembering has its place. But we've got it kind of reverse. We live mostly there and not here. And the idea is to live in the reality of the present. And the gift is that attention can be directed, as you just saw, and it can be steadied and it can be trained. And in doing so, there comes an intimacy with life, with the people you're with, with the work you're doing, with the things that you care about. Um, with the wondrous nowness of experience, there also comes a kind of authenticity. Because when we live in our past and future a lot, we're not really so connected with ourself as well as to others. 
But when we become more present, we know more what we feel, what we sense, um, and we're somehow in a deeper relationship with life instead of living so many moments ahead. And we see the colors and taste the textures and the flavors of life in all these ways. And you walk out here on the land and you smell the bay leaves from all these bay trees, you know, and um, I've walked this land enough to have seen a number of bobcats and one of my favorite memories is I have a, there's a little path that goes up out to a cottage back there and I was walking up to this little cottage one day um, in the spring, so it would have been in April or May um, after the little fawns were born. I've seen lots of little fawns around here and I walked up just a little ways up the path and paying attention and then all of a sudden in relatively low grass right kind of halfway on the path was the body of a little spotted fawn all curled in and I thought well maybe it died so I stood very very still I couldn't see it breathe I thought I wonder if it's still alive and, okay I'll just meditate I'll just stay here and then all of a sudden one dark eye opened like that and then shut very quickly like it had seen some monster right I thought, okay it's in there Ah, so very slowly I crept away and went some considerable distance and spent about five or ten minutes and I went back to see and of course its mom had come and it was gone and it was fine but it was a beautiful moment it was like we were there in this stillness between life and birth and death and then, okay I'm here oh whoops all right okay I'll leave you alone but there's something about being willing to quiet ourselves with one another, um, with the things that we have to do, with the tending of the world as a whole, that is part of the invitation of mindfulness or loving awareness. It's a different way of being than just being on a kind of inner treadmill. Does this make sense to you? And it's, it's why people say, okay, I sat, and even though sometimes the meditation is pleasant and sometimes it's distracted or not so pleasant, there's something about just quieting ourselves or, or coming back into center in the presence that's empowering, that gives us a connection with life. So that's the first meaning of wise effort is to train your capacity to be present, to develop, to sense it, and to embody it. Now the second, in Pali or Sanskrit language, the word for mindfulness is sati, but it's sometimes a compound word called sati sampajanya. And the second part of the word means, it's sometimes translated as mindfulness and clear comprehension. Um, a... I think a more useful translation is the mindful response. That mindfulness has two different dimensions to it. One is to see what's so, to be connected with the present, with clarity and kindness, loving awareness. And the second is the mindful response. What do we do? Well, in that case with the fawn, I stayed still, and then I saw its eyes, then I backed away. How do we respond mindfully to the circumstance of our life? Now, in the traditional descriptions of wise effort, it said there are four dimensions to wise effort. One is to prevent unhealthy states, greed, 
hatred, ignorance, the causes of suffering in our life and others, to do what you can to prevent them from arising in yourself. And to pay attention to your life so you see with clarity what is it that brings you know, those states to be and to try to prevent them in whatever way, to live in a way that diminishes um, greed, hatred, fear, ignorance, confusion. Prevent them. And then the second is, if they do arise, which they will because we're human beings, is when you notice them arising, to release them, to let them go, to not follow them. And this is, again, just as you could direct your attention to your feet or your hands or the door or your heart, um, you can direct your energy to either follow certain things or not follow it. We all know this, and this becomes part of the inner art that gives you a sense of how to navigate you. It's instead of the boat without a rudder, it gives you a rudder to steer with in the, you know, in the uh, waters of the stream you're navigating. So to release that which is unhealthy. And then the next two of, the, of these four wise efforts is to do that inwardly and in the circumstances of your life that fosters love, that fosters awareness or attention, that fosters wisdom, that fosters generosity, to do those things that foster your well-being and the well-being of others. And this, of course, points a lot to the inner states, but also how we act. And then the fourth is, when they do arise and you have a sense of love and connection and generosity and well-being, to do that which sustains it. To dwell in it, to inhabit it, and to invite it in some way to become more the way that you move through the world. Now these, this is possible for us. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to say it's a little bit like being at a mango tree, you know, and it's the season when the mangoes are ripe. He said, and you go to the mango tree, maybe even shake the tree and some mangoes come down, and then you sort through, is this an old rotten mango or is this a fresh good mango? And he said, it's not that complicated. You take a look at which this mango is a good mango and bring the, those put, goes in your basket, you know, and these ones let us leave aside. And to have that capacity of attention to see this is healthy, uh, this is skillful, this brings benefit, and this one, you know, this is not one I want to pick up. So, one of our great philosophers, along with all kinds of his other dimensions, is Albert Einstein. He says, I think the most important question facing humanity is, is the universe a friendly place? For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then will we use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. But if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create, to create tools and models of understanding. And because power and safety come together with understanding, we will understand the workings and motives of the universe and it will be a benefit to all. So here's Einstein kind of offering us what is, in a way, wise, a wise way to approach the world, whether it's 
you know, out of fear and building weapons and building walls, or seeing the possibility of benevolence, seeing the possibility that we can do something beautiful with our human incarnation and our human life. And whether it's your meditative or spiritual practice, or your personal relationships and family or community or globally, how do you direct your life energy? Direct it toward that which is wholesome or healthy. And this isn't a thing about judgment, that you're good or bad or something. It's just knowing that we contain all these energies. And the first thing, of course, is to recognize it. Okay, here's one I get caught in. Anger or fear or, you know, addiction or anxiety or whatever in, in ways that doesn't feel, or, or compulsion that doesn't feel healthy. Maybe with attention, I don't have to follow that. So I was out walking with Ajahn Chah on alms round, my teacher in the forest monasteries of Thailand, um, and passed a field and there was a great big rock, a boulder in the middle of the field. And he said, you see that boulder over there to us who were with him? We said, yes. He said, is it heavy? We said, yes. And he smiled, he said, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> That's the game, you know. You're going to see this stuff, right, in your experience, but you don't actually have to pick it up. And if it arises, you can release it. So here's a story from this new book, No Time Like the Present. Sandra, a woman I work with during one of the retreats here, needed a great deal of compassion to face her lifelong demon of binge eating. She described years of struggling with the compulsion and of wandering. She called it wandering like a hungry ghost with so much self-hatred. I believed that food had an unparalleled capacity to bring satisfaction and free me from suffering. Time and again I've reached for the food, looking for it to do its magic, only to have it turn on me, to fail me, to bring me untold physical and emotional suffering and shame. I became hypercritical of myself and my situation, and then despaired. Freedom has come as I've become more mindful of my body and the intense discomfort I was trying to escape from. I started to find that I could recover more quickly and less painfully from bouts of compulsive binging if I could stay even a little bit kind to my body and present with my pain. So this is what the loving awareness is training us to open our capacity to be present for the measure of pain and measure of sorrow and the measure of beauty that we all have. If I could stay even a little bit kind to my body and present with my pain. Instead of eating even more just to try and avoid the effects of having eaten too much and the remorse of having done it again, I could actually watch myself start down that sad old path. And as the loving awareness grew, I realized, oh, I don't have to do this and self-compassion would grow. I'm deeply grateful for the compassion that has rescued me from the realm of the hungry ghosts." So there's something very tender in listening to that because you can feel her suffering and also the wisdom in it 
that this is what's possible for us in each of our own lives and in our own dimensions. So we can let things go. And I think about, um, Sylvia Borstein told this story. She lived for quite a long time, one of the main teachers here. She and Seymour had a little house in southern France that she would go. Um, and they decided that they needed to change the bed they had. They needed a new bed, kind of fix things. And so they went to the local town, um, and they saw this beautiful antique bed, but it had to be, you know, fixed in some special way, and the mattress refitted and so forth. Um, and so they, they arranged to buy it, and first of all, it, it didn't come on time, and then when it finally came, the mattress didn't fit right, and then the woman charged them considerably more to fix it and make it right and so forth. And Sylvia said, I started to get really upset and angry with her because she was, you know, not doing what she said and charging more and all these things. She said, but I, I didn't know what to do with it, so I decided I would go and tell her how I felt. And she said, I, so I went in to see Madame Verdun, you know, and I told her that um, I thanked her for the beautiful bed, but that I was upset um, because of the way it had gone and charging money and not doing it right, not doing what she said, and it caused the arising of mauvaise émotion, of bad feelings, right? This is her way of trying to describe it. And she said, Madame Verdun's response was to look at her and say, oh, these mauvaise emotions, they are not good for you. You should let them go. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about the money, mind you, right? <clears throat> yeah, they're bad for you. You should let them go. A poem from an eight-year-old. I want to tell the fish, eat only the bait, not the hook. When you eat the bait, start from the edge and slowly gnaw bit by bit. Never ever gobble it in one go, you know. <laughs> so there's your meditation instructions. So, you know, you can pay attention and reflect in yourself what fosters well-being for you. When you let go, that's one piece, and you're kind of talking about that as wise effort to to actually direct your attention to what's healthy and abandon what's unhealthy, what fosters love for you? What fosters a sense of well-being? What fosters generosity? What fosters some centeredness and calm? Is it sitting in meditation? Or walking in nature? Maybe it's some kinds of reading that you do. Or community. Maybe it's hanging out with children. Maybe it's avoiding children. I don't know, you know. Um, maybe it's quieting yourself, you know. Or maybe it's taking action about things that you care about, that you actually don't foster well-being until you stand up for something that matters. That may be what brings this kind of energy of life and presence alive for you and brings a greater clarity. But these kind of reflections in yourself what turns you toward well-being and health is part of the, these teachings. So wise effort, wise endeavor, the effort to be mindful, to bring loving awareness to this world, um, the effort as you do to not only notice what's here, 
mindfulness, but also to respond to it in a way and to foster that which is healthy, to let go of that which isn't personally in, in your relation to others. Two more dimensions. Wise effort, ask for a kind of steadiness or willingness. And if you want to integrate your meditation or your spiritual ideas and spiritual perspective into your life, it's not that easy, because we have gain and loss and praise and blame, you know, and painful days and pleasant experiences, and it goes back and forth, joy and sorrow. Everybody has this, right? So you say, all right, I want my life to be this beautiful, happy thing. It doesn't work that way. That's not human incarnation. Human incarnation has 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So what's asked of you in this dimension of wise endeavor or wise effort is to say, yes, this is the place I will practice too. And to, to be willing to turn toward your experience, whatever it is, and say, this is the place of, of practice. Frank O'Connor, who is an Irish author, tells in one of his books how as a boy he and his friends would make their way adventuring across the Irish countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to climb over, too difficult to, per to permit their voyage to continue, they would take off of their hats and toss them over the wall, and then they had no choice but to follow them. <laughs> right? And there's something in that spirit of adventure to say, all right, you know, things are this way, sometimes very painful, sometimes beautiful. Let's see what comes next. Let's open ourselves. Let's see how we can work with this, how we can respond to what's here. Because you don't actually know where you are. I mean, even looking at that little marble black, beautiful round black perfect circle move across the face of the sun, um, we don't really know where we are. We're somehow in the midst of the universe unfolding. And Zen Master Dogen said, to meditate is like being on a boat on the ocean where you can't actually see the shore, what you have is where you are. This is where, where, where we are. Um, and so you come into the present, and you notice what's skillful and healthy and so forth, and foster that, and what's healthy you let go, but you stay steady with it. And you say, all right, let's see then what happens. You experiment, you explore, let's see what happens next. And with this, um, you start to understand that mindfulness or loving awareness, and it's in the very first teachings in the, the Buddhist texts on mindfulness, is developed inwardly and it's developed outwardly. And then finally it's developed inwardly and outwardly that the two really can't be separated. So that you attend to your own inner freedom and you attend to the freedom of others. You attend to your own well-being and you tend to the well-being of others. And I was recently at a conference with um, Alyssa Eppel. She works, um, scientist in a lab, with Liz Blackburn at UC here in the city. Um, and Elizabeth Blackburn won the Nobel Prize for her discovery of telomeres, the little caps on the end of chromosomes um, that protect chromosomes. And when they get frayed or reduced, you know, they reduce your life expectancy and so forth. Um, 
And Lissa had done some wild, interesting research, one of which was she did a study that showed that for people who had meditated for you know, some weeks, not a huge long time, that the frayed telomeres got better or they extended themselves. So you're going to live longer, right? So there is that if you do this, but I know that doesn't matter. But anyway, um, the thing that was more wild, and I don't know, I really want to read all the, the way they analyzed the study, is that they also began to discover that the telomeres were affected not just by what you did in yourself, but by the community and place around you. And here's the wild part. If you were in a community where there was a great deal of disparity between rich and poor, the people who are poor, who generally have a lot of stress, how will I pay the bills, how will I feed my kids, their telomeres were shorter and frayed. Stress, pretty straightforward. But the people who lived in that community, even in a gated community, separated from them, their telomeres were also frayed and shorter. It's as if your cells are listening and connected to one another. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we know interdependence, but now, you know, with some sophisticated science, we're getting um, new, new levels of it. So a steadiness or a willingness is to say, all right, I'm going to tend inward and outward and, and make this life that I have, what comes with it, a place rather than just to you know, measure success and failure, whatever comes to be a place that I bring attention, loving awareness, and that I cultivate that which is beneficial. And, you know, it can be tough. So now it's Juneteenth, and I thought I would read something in honor of Juneteenth um, that fits. I got this children's book. I was looking in this bookstore. It's called Extraordinary People. And I thought, well, this is funny because the central person in the in the middle of the picture is Evil Knievel, the daredevil. <laughs> next to him is Marie Curie, and then next to him on the other side is Bruce Lee. And I said, okay, this is a pretty interesting book. And I started to flip through, and there were a bunch of people, a whole bunch of them that I'd never heard of, or maybe just vaguely heard of. And it was a, So the one I want to read that kind of represents this quality of um, steadiness, of willing to, willingness to tend both inner and outer, is um, a, a woman that, um, her nickname was um, Stagecoach Mary, all right? Born in Hickman County, Tennessee, died in Montana in 1914. Stagecoach Mary, six foot tall, 200 pounds. Mary smoked cigars, packed a pistol, kept a jug of whiskey at her side, and made certain the mail got delivered. She was the first African-American woman to be employed as a mail carrier in the United States, and only the second woman to work for the U.S. Postal Service, a job she took on at age 60. All right. She was born a slave, grew up as an orphan, and after emancipation, she was taken under the wing of an Ohio nun named Mother Amadeus. When Mother Amadeus suddenly got sick, Mary nursed her back to health. She also took it upon herself to protect all the nuns in the convent with a gun strapped under her apron. <laughs> Of course, this sort of toughness, while it may have been appreciated, doesn't necessarily fit in a nunnery in the long term, and ultimately she was dismissed from her duties. But the nuns felt bad, so they provided her with enough money to start her own business. 
Mary opened a cafe, but because she was kind and generous, she gave to food to everyone who stepped in, and her business didn't really do very well, ran into the ground several times. Eventually, she closed down the cafe and began working a mail delivery job. She and her mule, Moses, never missed a day of work for a decade, right? Even if it was snowing and the wagon was frozen in its tracks, Mary would make the deliveries on foot, carrying the sacks of mail on her shoulders. Yeah. And Cascade, Montana, loves stagecoach Mary, and every year on her birthday, the town closes its schools to celebrate. All right. So there's a little bit of, you know, right effort, okay? Willingness. Um, but we have it in us. You each do in your own way. And what's possible is to remember that you carry this capacity to direct your attention and to direct your energy. And it's not like some little battery that's going to run out, you know. Um, love doesn't run out. When you open the channel, you get more love, you know. And um, attention doesn't run out. When you bring more attention, attention grows. You become a channel for something that's already a part of you. So steadiness and willingness to be here for the 10,000 joys and sorrows. And then the last dimension is balance. And of course the traditional um, metaphor, which most everyone's heard in the Buddhist texts, is um, the Buddha says, in your spiritual practice, in your meditation, in your meditative life, is... Uh, Wise energy and wise effort is like tuning the strings of a lute or a guitar. You don't want it too tight and you don't want it too loose. You want to tune it in a way that it brings harmony. And this is something that we need to learn and we experiment with it, like riding a, a bicycle in some way. And Again, my teacher Ajahn Chah, I would hear him teach and at times he would say quite contradictory things to people. Do this and then he'd tell somebody else, do something entirely different. And when I asked him about it, I said, wait, you know, you contradict yourself. He just laughed. He said, this is how I teach. He said, there's a, there's a beautiful road to go down, and I know it well. But I look down, and I see that somebody's walking, and they're about to fall in the ditch on the right-hand side or get lost in some little sidetrack. So I say, hey, go to the left a little bit. And then you see that same person or another about to fall on a ditch on the left-hand side or or, you know, get off on a little sidetrack and left. And I say, hey, now go to the right a little bit. And he said, that's really all I do, is I try to bring them back to where they are and not, you know, get lost. So this takes a kind of attentiveness to our lives um, to see with loving awareness what is the right way to marshal our energy and to use it and what, what is a mindful response. Um, and of course, as Martha Graham says, you are unique in the whole vast universe. There has never been, you know, in galaxies and, and hundreds and millions of galaxies, there's never been anybody as weird as you. <laughs> it's just, this is it, you know? So either you're going to do it, but this is, you, you've got it. You might as well flaunt it, baby, because this is your life. So sometimes what's needed in balance is to be tough. And as some people in the education thing, you know, there are these, these different uh, fads in education. Grit is fatty now, right? Okay, teaching children grit. 
among, uh, among other things. There's a lot of things that children can learn, um, being tough. And it used to be that in the Zen tradition, if you wanted to go and practice in a Zen temple um, in Japan, you had to go and sit Tangario first. They didn't let you and you go knock on the door. I want to come and do a retreat like Spirit Rocky, just sign up online, right? <clears throat> Pay your money, whatever. No. You had to go and sit outside the gate and show that you were sincere. And to show that you were insincere meant often you would go in the winter and sit in the snow and sit outside the gate all day and not move. And they, you know, somebody would kind of open the gate a little and say, oh, we got one sitting out there, let's see how, they, how long they last, right? And after two or three or four days of sitting in the snow and not moving, you come back the next morning, okay, I'm ready, and you know, go through it. They'd say, oh, I think we got a live one, all right, open the gate, we'll let him in, see or her, and see if they're any good. Um, so there's, there's something in the training, and you all know it, that asks a kind of strength and courage in you. Um, and there are times in life that will be demanded of you. And sometimes it's some great endeavor that you really have to throw yourself into. You started a, an enterprise, or you started a school, or a business, or a family, or something, and yeah, all you have to do, okay, we have twins, haha, I guess and now we have a, you don't have to go in front of the gate of the Zen temple. You have two live-in Zen masters. We just gave birth, to, you know, all right, that's your training, you know. Um, but also, I think of, the times when people have come up to me and said, my child has a very serious cancer, or my child has died. You know, and then, all right, what do you do with that as a spiritual practice? Because you can't, I mean, it's, it's one of the great sufferings, um, one of the greatest sufferings to be visited upon us, um, to lose a, a beloved child, and yet you have to go on living. And, how, and you carry it. You can't say, I get over it. You don't get over it. You take it and, and it cracks your heart and it changes you as a person. And then you have to live with that fire. Um, and that becomes part of who you are. And maybe the spirit of that child says, all right, dad or mom, now you really have to live because I'm not here to live it. You, you've got to live my part too or something. So there's a toughness that's asked of us. And you will have it come upon you, and that at times is what's needed. But sometimes what we need in order to really be present for this mysterious life is much more delicate. We need to stop and pause and listen more deeply, you know, and slow down. And uh, this is a a poem, sometimes I read that passage from If the Buddha Dated about flirting, but this is a, a poem um, about approaching things in a more tender way. Think of those Chinese monks' tales, years of struggling in the zendo and then the clink while sweeping up of one stone on another and enlightenment like that. Emily Dickinson's wisdom Truth in circuit lies in circles. Or see Grant's book, Common Birds and How to Know Them, New York, Scribner's 1901. And here's the instruction. The approach must be by detour, advantage taken of rock, tree, mound, and brush. But if without success this way, use artifice. Throw off all stealths of appearance, watchfulness, 
Look guileless, a loiterer, purposeless, stroll on, not looking directly toward the bird, avoiding any gaze too steadfast, or failing still in this, give voice to sundry whistles and chirp, your quarry may stay to answer. More briefly try, but stymied, give it up, do something else. Leave the untrappable thought, go walking, ideas buzz the air like flies, return to work. And when you get quiet, outside the window, the cream dip tail and red fire legs doused with watery brown emerges from the wood's dark margin, stopping all your thoughts and briefly squats, not fox, but vixen, and then moves along out of sight. Enlightenment, wrote one master, is an accident, though certain efforts make you accident prone. <laughs> Take your time. And so there's something also about delicacy in your own life and in your tending of one another. And no one can tell you any more than riding a bicycle how to come back to balance. This is another part of loving awareness to listen in this way. Laurie Anderson, poet, performance artist, musician. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle, and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months. And then when the map is finished, they say some prayers and erase it and throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take, and before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. <laughs> and I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes and I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He'd never had coffee before so he kept talking faster and faster. <laughs> and I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me please? And he was really being practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, keep going, because it's time to go home. So here we are, you know. We don't quite know where we are on the boat in the ocean and we're on this little marble going around our beautiful star. But we do know some things. In Zen they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You quiet the mind and tend the heart 
and then you get up and the garden is the garden of your life, the garden of the world. And you plant seeds wherever you are in whatever your situation. You plant seeds of love, of compassion, of care for yourself and others. You stretch your arm out and mend the part of the world that you can touch. Because you can't mend the whole world, but you can mend some part of it. And there's a, there's a beautiful account of um, Alan Chadwick at the University of Santa Cruz, who was one of the pioneers of biodynamic gardening and all kinds of amazing things. Um, and um, Chadwick took his class in the 1970s in the University of Santa Cruz um, looking for a place to do a garden and went and found a junkyard lot that was filled with rusted out cars, broken glass, chunks of cement, sand, abandoned trash. And he asked the owner if his class could use the lot for an experiment to grow flowers and vegetables. And he you know, said, sure, but you're crazy, that soil is dead. And so the student put, students put months in revitalizing the soil. This garden has now become famous for its extraordinary delicious vegetables and gorgeous flowers. And in the same way, you can both tend the garden of your heart and of your life, and you can plant beautiful seeds. And that's what's given to you. This is really the, the end, the gift of wise endeavor, wise effort, to step out of the body of fear, the small sense of self, those fearful thoughts will come and rest in something bigger in the sense of your connection with the vastness and with the people you meet and the work you do, whether it's a business you're starting, whether it's the raising of a child, whether it's the spiritual endeavor, whether it's an artistic endeavor. What moves through the stars moves through you. This is what's given to you. And the qualities of the Buddha can awaken in you. And so, as it says, one hand on the beauty of the world and one hand on the suffering of all beings and two feet grounded in the present moment. And then as you walk through the world, to plant those seeds that bring beauty where you are, inwardly and outwardly. And you've been given the energy of the stars this life energy, and you have the capacity to do all kinds of things with it. May you use this energy to plant beautiful seeds, to work for justice, to plant seeds of love, to care for yourself and those around you in this earth, each in your own way. And may you use your meditation, your spiritual practices as a way to cultivate and remind you and open your heart and your being to this possibility.